And the place where all the magic happens, the BDSM studio. Woo! Long named that. In fact, that was a name given to it by Sovereign Tech listeners. Of course, that's Brian's Dungeon of Sex and Magic, and certainly I am about all of that. <laughs> of course, I really, I just think magic was uh, science. And, uh, well, you know, hundreds of years ago, there were thousands, maybe. Anyway, um, that's a whole other subject that I've talked about many times before. Uh, but maybe I'll get to talk about it again because, well, we're going to be, you know, one of my favorite uh, recent animes on black magic uh, will be making a comeback this year. Of course, that's Castlevania, which uh, was one of my top picks for 2017 uh, that Netflix has been doing. Also, another thing. So I think it just came out today. There's the sequel to Godzilla Planet of the Monsters um, that I think just hit this today on, on Netflix, even though it came out in Japan back in May. Um, I I will be doing a review of that and a review of Voltron Season 6, which is ironic because the last time, I, or when I did the review of Voltron Season 5, was when Godzilla Planet of the Monsters came out. Holy shit. Well, we'll get to that. Um, but then also I come to find out that Voltron Season 7, which we thought we were going to have to wait because... Well, if you've seen season six, you know that things have, well, it's not really a spoiler or it's not really a spoiler, but things have calmed down. Okay. And so we thought it'd be a while, but no, we're getting season seven, like second week of August. I mean, like in no time we're getting that shit. Okay. No complaint for me. I'll take all of all the Voltron all fucking day long, man. Yeah. Something I wish I I'll tell you, I get people asking me sometimes, you know, like, what do you, what do you wish Netflix would really pick up since it seems like they don't mind taking on. Um, classic content. Well, here's the thing is I don't like it when Netflix like re reboots or not reboots. I guess now the term is, I don't know what the fuck the term is, you know, reimagine remake reboot used to mean what reimagined or remake means. Uh, and restarting would be, you know, picking up something from where it ended when you last knew about it. Uh, I would love it if somebody, some fucking buddy would make more Robotech. Because Robotech is just, it's great. And I mean Robotech, not Macross. Robotech is the greatest fucking, it's got to be, in my opinion, it's pretty much the greatest anime ever made. And I, I know that's weird because, like, it's a wholly American product, but hot damn, is that so sexy and romantic. I, I love Robotech. And I'd love more, you know, stuff that even goes beyond the Shadow Chronicles, right? That'd be, that'd be fantastic. So, fortunately, we get plenty of... Uh, uh, plenty of comic books about that. In fact, we did get, didn't we get that Robotech, uh, Robotech slash Voltron uh, crossover, which I think they had to do with the classic Voltron. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So whatever. We're not here to talk about that. But <laughs> just saying that, that those are some of the episodes um, coming up for you in July here very soon. Oh, boy. Um, so a lot of people asked me because I did the Star Trek update yesterday and a lot of people asked, Hey, um, wow. Tell us more about the Nokia two. What's the deal here? And, you know, are you going to put lineage OS on it eventually? Blah, blah, blah. Um, again, I'm not going to review it yet. I'm just letting you know, I'm not going to review it yet because I don't think it's fair to review this phone until they put out the, uh, uh, Android Oreo go edition version of the OS until they update it to that. Then, you know, we'll see what this thing's really made of. It seems more like Nokia just wanted to push out its its budget line way ahead of time. And, you know, like because the, the successor to the Nokia 2 already has uh, Android Oreo Go, which is the Nokia one, which just came out recently. 
Uh, but the Nokia one's not available in the U.S. as to where the Nokia two is. Uh, so yeah, when when it gets the Oreo update, then we'll talk about you know we'll, maybe we'll cover cover more of the Nokia two. But definitely had a lot of people asking a lot of questions. Um, I mean, I can tell you because like right now it, it's just not fair to review it. Like it only has one gig of RAM, and you'll have your headphones will like out of nowhere quit. Um, apps will just stop. You know, I'm guessing because they run out of RAM or whatever. Uh, I mean, and it's it's a pretty ugly situation right now because Android Oreo Go or Android Go, you know, whatever shape that takes in the future as well. um, Android Go is supposed to allow for like it has specific versions of maps, Gmail and all that. Like it has Maps Go, Gmail Go, YouTube Go and all these other ones so that they're not as large. So the operating system, first off, isn't large, but also the Google apps on it aren't as large. Uh, and that way you can fit more, say, on an 8-gig uh, onboard storage as well as do more with only a gig of RAM. Okay, so that's when it'll be fair to review it. So I appreciate people asking about it. But overall, I mean, I, I you know, right now I'm enjoying using it uh, partly because the fucking battery just won't die. I mean, it has like a 4100 uh, milliampere battery in it and, and a little 720p screen. I mean... You know, I can hold it in one hand, which is nice, but then also, fuck, like, like, I mean, the thing just won't quit, you know, and you leave it, you leave it sitting around for days. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, that'll be coming up in the future. So anyway, let's get into uh, some of our questions here. Um, you know, a question that I keep getting, no matter how many times I answer, and it's okay, like, like I said, sometimes we have to revisit these questions because, you know, things change. A question that I often get in is like, okay, what should I use as far as email? Um, like, oh, also something else I'll tell you is I did get the uh, video from uh, Ryan Taylor for the um, for my dark Android talk, or not my dark Android talk, but my privacy talk that I gave at Porkfest. Um, so I will be I will be ripping audio from that, putting out the video eventually, etc. Uh, and we'll make sure all that's a, you know, all that's a good time. Um, but it was a question I got asked there as well. It's like, okay, what do we use as far as email? You know, we want to get away from the tech giants. don't want to use Gmail, blah, blah, blah. What do we do? Um, and of course, for years, I've recommended GMX. But I, I'm going to tell you something is I'm kind of to the point, even though you can sort of cheat GMX to where you can use it pretty well without paying a penny. Um, I recommended a few months back that people try out Fastmail, Fastmail.fm. Now, this is a mail provider that's been around is almost as long as there's been webmail. I mean, and we're talking, so yeah, we're talking like 20 years that they've been around. I mean, they've been around a long, long time. And the important thing to understand with fast mail is that mail is all they do. Like that's it. They do mail. I mean, they, they'll host your domain name and stuff like that. You know, if you want to use a custom domain short, they'll do that. But by and large mail is everything. Like that's all that they do. That's all they ever do. And so I recently, um, I, I was informed that I needed to, uh, so I had been using Outlook Premium for my SovereignTech.com uh, email address. And there were reasons for using that, partly because it was able to resolve the DNS issue I was having uh, with SovereignTech.com, because I got SovereignTech.com a long time ago, and there were some, there were some issues in getting everything transferred around. And Outlook Premium, uh, you know, got past all that, cut past all that. So I stopped using Outlook Premium or like I stopped putting stock in Outlook Premium because Microsoft effectively said, well, we're not going to do this. You know, we're, we're going to be canceling this. We're going to be phasing this out and we're not really going to be doing it anymore, 
which is hilarious because they built in so many features. I mean, it really was a well-done mail product. Okay. And it was like $40 a year. And then if you needed them to host your domain name, that was another $10, I think. Uh, just like it is, you know, it's the, I can just like an, almost like an, I can fee that you get on just about, or, you know, yearly fee that you get on any, uh, uh domain or hosting service like Namecheap or whatever. Okay. Uh, but then they said they, they more or less said, yeah, you know, you might want to start, you know, getting your affairs in order because we're going to be end, we're going to end up killing this sooner or later. And so I was like, OK, I, I'm just going to get away from it now. Oddly enough is Microsoft offered last month. They offered for me to re up with Outlook Premium. And I'm thinking, like, what? well, I mean, I get it that they're going to be canceling it. They're not canceling it right now, but it's going to be down the line that they're going to end up canning it. But I'm like, I'm not going to give you any more fucking money. Like if you're just going to end up canning the service, like what the, why the hell would I do that? So I had already had it in order to, uh, to switch over to fastmail.fm. Uh, like that's what I planned on doing. Um, there's other options I could have gone with. I could have gotten a G apps account. I've could have gotten, but there ain't no fucking way I'm doing that. Uh, you know, there's a whole, there's, there's a bunch of options I could have gone with to do this. So, but I tried out fastmail.fm and I, I, now I'm just, because I get this question all the time. In fact, I got it again last week, uh, into Patreon. I got to tell you, like, this is the one. Holy shit. I mean, and, and, you know, you say the name Fastmail, right? But, like, they kind of live up to that name in a very real way because everything is fast. And especially, so, sure, I have a Gmail account, okay, that I don't use, you know, or I mean, I use, but I don't use. Um, It's attached to various Google services and whatever, but, you know, I don't really, I don't use it for anything personal or for any kind of important business. Um, but I don't know if you saw where the, and I think this is what the, the, the one question asker that I got asked about this was concerned about is that they did the huge update to Gmail where they made Gmail look different. Now you can convert it back to the old way and you can kind of leave it that way. Um, I, I would imagine sooner or later they're going to cut off the old version of Gmail. Okay. Uh, but you know, now the new one's out and you know, I understood what this person was asking because when they said that it ran really slow on their computer. I tried it out on one of my older machines and fuck. Yeah, it takes forever for Gmail to load, which is antithetical to what Gmail was known for. You know, Gmail was known. I mean, it was always very feature rich. Like you'd end up with the hangouts thing on the left-hand side, the calendar and all that stuff. Then there's stuff on the right, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Oh fuck. But it has gotten, I mean, if you're on an older machine or if you're like on a Libreboot machine, it takes forever for that web interface to come up. Now it sucks. Uh, fast mail, when you switch over to that and I'm not doing an advertisement for them, folks, I don't, I don't need to. Okay. I'd love to have them on as a sponsor, but I'm not doing an advertisement for them, but fast mail, hot damn. I mean, in no time, like, does that interface load up? Everything you're doing just loads up. I mean, almost instantaneously. It is remarkable how fast fast mail is really pleased with that it's got a great dark like you can change themes it's just it's got a ton of beautiful little features it can do calendars it does all that shit and i've just been nothing but impressed um with with their with their setup and, and what they offer and how to get it plugged into you know whatever other um uh, mail software that you end up using be it thunderbird or if you're using k9 on android or whatever you're using and not only that um, they have a lot like their, their two factor authentication options are fantastic. You don't have to use any SMS based two factor. If you don't want to, you can use your YubiKey key or your security key. I mean, this is the thing when a company 
is solely concentrating like on one fucking thing and just doing that really, really well. You can tell, like you notice, and they've got the security down pat. I mean, they've got all this stuff just, just so locked down. I mean, I already set up my YubiKey with it and everything. And I mean, and it's, it's beautiful how it's set up, um, all the different integration, uh, man, it's just, you forget, right? When, when a company does so many things and email is just kind of an afterthought, you forget just how great of an experience you can get when you get with a company where that's all they fucking do. And fuck fast mail's great. <laughs> and I just, I love the way you can lock it down. I mean, you can lock down your account like there's no tomorrow. I mean, it, it's, it's tremendous what they offer. Um, and they allow for you to, you know, do good stuff with your domain. If you bring your domain name to them and everything. Uh, and I think it's like 40 a year. So it's just like what outlook premium was charging. Um, uh, but worth every penny, you know, you get what you pay for. In my opinion, you really get what you pay for. Like you're paying for email. You're going to get, you get this like really world-class email experience with it. So I'm going to recommend it again. If you want to jump on, you know, get using email, go for it with fast mail. I was tempted to go with proton mail, but I don't, I don't really have a pro- problem with proton mail so much anymore, but I, I just didn't do it. I went with fast mail and fucking a, I mean, I was just, just blown. I'm still blown away at how well it works. You can set up desktop notifications, which I mean, yes, a lot of sites can do that, but not every email provider can do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, they are making sure that they're on top of every single latest technology within your browser and within security and everything. I mean, I just, I was, I was blown away. I was really blown away and who knows what the fuck lava boom's doing, right? <laughs> like, I'm still waiting to get all these emails from lava boom saying where I can, you know, use, uh, you know, use the email and everything. I mean, I paid for that. Fuck. Was that two years ago when I put down the Bitcoin on that? Oh man. So anyway, fastmail.fm. I am very, very pleased. I should check in on Lava Boom now that I think about it. But regardless, uh, you know, yeah, if you're looking for for some kind of email, you know, service, pay for it. Go ahead and pay for it. Lay down the 40 bucks a year. I guarantee you're going it, to it's totally worth it. You're going to love what you're getting with these guys. I was I'm, I'm still in awe at just how well it works. Um, so, yeah, anytime you're emailing BBS at SovereignTech.com, you know, all that's going through fastmail. So. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Let's, um, so we got some, got some kind of fun questions. Some of them I've had to put together. Uh, and this is a big one that I've had to put together. So I've gotten a lot of you that have asked, why the fuck are you talking about William Moulton Marston all the time now? <laughs> and I think I teased in last week's Q and a that I was going to get into it. Um, and, but we ran out of time. I didn't get the chance to get into it cause I ended up going on that crazy tirade about, or not crazy, but I went on going about that tirade about movie pass and Netflix and movie studios and everything like that. So I didn't get to get into the question, but the basic gist is, is that why the hell really, you know, I mean, this is pretty much what everybody's asking. Why are you talking about this guy so much? What's the big deal? Um, of course, I'm not just talking about the guy actually his, shall we say his magnum opus of, uh, of books is, well, I'm, I'm doing it for Sovereign Tech First University, of course, Emotions of Normal People, um, that I uh, that that more and more parts. I mean, we're going to go through the through the entire book, and I really think that it's something uh, worth going through. Uh, in fact, I know I haven't released it yet, but Chapter 3 is where things uh, get a little more interesting, even though I think Chapter 1 was also interesting. I know Chapter 2 is a little bit, maybe a little on the weaker side, but he's making his points, certainly for the time. But, you know, once we get to Chapter 3 and up, I mean, it, it really gets into fascinating territory. 
But anyway, I want to get into, I want to explain kind of like why I have this fascination, why this guy keeps coming up a lot as late, uh, you know, and get into that and answer all of your questions. Um, so William Moulton Marston, again, guy born in the 19th century and would come into prominent prominence in the 20th century. I think he was born in 1893, ends up dying in 1947 uh, at a fairly young age, obviously, as you can tell by by those dates. Uh, dies of cancer. He doesn't know that he, uh, you know, shocker of shockers. He doesn't know that he has cancer. Um, like his family doesn't tell him, uh, because they're afraid that he'll blow up. And, and here's, here's the thing I want to open this up with, because before you think I'm talking all la da and dreamy about this guy. Okay. No, he ends up later on in his life. Okay. He ends up being really a piece of shit. Like I, or I mean, and I don't know if it's because of health or whatever. Um, but I mean, he really like takes a down, he goes on a downward spiral. There's no doubt about that. I am not saying this guy is a perfect guy by any stretch of the imagination or that you should emulate his entire life or that he didn't have problems before, even when his health started to go down, whatever. I'm not making any such claim like that. Okay. What I am saying about William Moulton Marston, who is the person that did two things, two major things that people will remember him for. One is, is, I mean, and, and his wife and lover, lovers actually, uh, which you find out about you know, whatever part they had to play in it. And certainly his wife may have, uh, Elizabeth Marston may have had a huge part in, you know, figuring out how to, or figuring out the polygraph test. Okay. This is the guy that invented the lie detector, uh, or at least had a major hand in it as well as the person who directly created wonder woman. Okay. Uh, the, the comic book character, he created wonder woman and wrote the character for quite some time. So this is who we're talking about here. Okay. He was also one of the leading, psychologists of his day, uh, you know, at Harvard, uh, he was Harvard, Harvard trained, schooled the whole thing. He, he was, I mean, recognized as really brilliant and given, you know, courses to do and everything. Uh, I mean, he was fired, uh, eventually from his, from his school, but I mean, you know, he was, he was the real deal. So psychologist creator of the polygraph and creator of, and writer of wonder woman. Um, in fact, when he goes away from writing Wonder Woman, you really tell the difference. If you get like, I think DC sells volume one and volume two, the golden age of Wonder Woman. Those are specifically the Marston years or what he would go by his pen, his comic book pen name, which was uh, Charles Moulton. OK, which is why people didn't know, you know, didn't equate to William Marston with the creator of Wonder Woman, nor did they, you know, equate the uh, creator of Wonder Woman with the guy that invented the polygraph test. Right. So we're talking about a very interesting character here, no doubt. And I got into quite a bit of this uh, in the the opening in chapter one, the first part of Emotions of Normal People. I gave you an introduction, a very basic introduction into who and what he was. Um, but, you know, we can go into maybe a little more depth. If you really want to go into depth, there's two books that I recommend that you read and or that you listen to or read, whatever. Uh, and they're fairly new. The, these have only come out in the past couple of years. Uh, the one is by Jill Lepore, which is The Secret History of Wonder Woman, okay, which is all about the Marstons. And then uh, the other one is Wonder Woman Unbound by Tim Hanley. Now, Wonder Woman Unbound gets into a lot of about the Marstons, 
But it also spends a lot of time uh, talking about comic book characters in general, not just Wonder Woman. It's a fascinating book on its own. You know, whether you're looking into Marston or not, it's a really, really interesting book as to. And and it quotes a lot of what Jill Lepore did for Secret History of Wonder Woman. Okay, so, uh, I mean, if you really want to know about Marston, Secret History of Wonder Woman is the better book as far as those goes, if you only want to choose one. But Wonder Woman Unbound is also, you know, a fascinating exploration and has some independent work. And also it gets into the broader context of what the comic book industry was like in the 40s, uh, 30s and 40s to to explain, you know, how something like Wonder Woman could really, uh, really happen. So I do recommend both of those books. If I can think of it, I will put links to them in the show notes for this episode uh, for you to check out. But uh yeah, and I, I thought they were both tremendous reads. I loved both of those books uh, and very insightful. And I, you know, I read them because not that I needed to know more about Wonder Woman, you know, necessarily, because as you read these books, of course, you understand. And if you're a comic book fan, you know how this goes. There have been multiple ages of comic books, right? There's the Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze, you know, I mean, you know, whatever. There's all these different ages of comic books, okay? <laughs> um, you know, then the modern age, blah, blah, blah where the characters could have completely different outlooks on life. The characters can have completely different origins. I mean, the comic book, the comic book industry has never really had, I mean, there's been attempts at doing it and there's been different spans of time, some better than others where it tried to have a cohesive canon or bring together a cohesive picture. Uh, but you know, serious comic book fans know that that's just not the case. You know, you're really only collecting a series of moments more so than anything else when you're into most comic books, at least from DC and Marvel. So, uh, yeah, like I, I didn't really need, you know, because learning about Wonder Woman's history is interesting, the history of the character itself, but you know that it doesn't really hold any bearing today. Not really. So, you know, the only reason you're maybe interested in that is, you know, if you didn't know about the, you know, the golden age comic book uh, uh, era uh, and or if you wanted to know about the creators of these characters, it's, you know, themselves. And in this case, this was more of the, you know, this was the really the holding interest with a lot of this. So William Moulton Marston, um, to talk about him a little bit and and why I think he's such a fascinating character. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll spell it right out for you. And, and we have other questions to get to. Okay, but I'm going to spell this right out for you here. I can relate to the guy. Like, I can really relate to the guy. You know, he, uh, not that I went to Harvard, not that I'm a psychologist. I mean, I, you know, when I was in the military, I was in psychological operations, but that's really not the same thing. Um, he was, he ends up, William Moulton Marston ends up becoming a, he is a spy, works for the OSS for the, you know, with the U.S. Army during World War One, um, does a stint there and he comes out of it. He comes out of, you know, serving in the Great War realizing that that war was not right and that maybe war in general was not right. Now, granted, later on, Wonder Woman would be taking on the Nazis. But, you know, so you're saying, oh, well, he supported World War Two. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You have to understand that the comic book industry was fighting Nazis before the U.S. entered World War Two. All right. Like it was it was kind of an ahead of the game thing. It's not like he was supporting necessarily the U.S. war machine, just the comic book industry in general, which not no surprise, you know, had a lot of a lot of its uh, writers, creators, artists were Jews. They were fighting the Nazis well ahead of the U.S. 
uh, you know, the U.S. government, shall we say, or the U.S. Army or, you know, the U.S. military. So keep that in mind that while he may have been anti-Nazi, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was like pro-war. OK, uh, even though, you know, one could make that argument and fine, whatever. I know a lot of people who have, you know, perfectly anti-war leanings, but then you talk to them about World War Two and, you know, they start to make comments like, well, maybe we needed that one, you know, and, and w- whatever. OK, I'm not. That's not the kind of commentary I want to get into right now. It's a whole other situation. But I just wanted to bring up like, OK, this guy gets anti-war leanings and then what's he doing creating a character that's that's punching Nazis? Well, there you go uh, that or, you know, there's there's a bit of explanation on on that. Uh, and this is an important thing to bring up quickly is that there's there's a lot known thanks to personal correspondence and some other things about William Moulton Marston and the entire Marston family, which would include more than two adults. Um but also a lot of that information was kept secret for over 60 years, you know, and, and no, like nobody or well, at least over 50 and, you know, nobody was the wiser. Nobody really made all these connections over who this guy was and what his life was like. Not really until much, much later on until after, you know, pretty much everybody's dead and gone as far as the Marston family goes, except for maybe the kids. So, you know, as far as like, getting into the head space of a lot of what he was doing, especially in the forties, what William Moulton Marston was doing. That's a tough call because, you know, like he led a very private life and he had to lead a private life because let's talk about what happens next. So he gets out of the, uh, you know, out of serving in the U S military. He's no longer a spy with the OSS and he goes on to become a professor effectively of psychology. He develops his own, uh, system is uh, called disc theory. Okay. Which disc stands for dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. Okay. And his basic gist is that, and you can hear this when you listen to uh, the sovereign tech first university readings that I've done so far of emotions of normal people, you can get the idea of what he's talking about, uh, of how, you know, he feels like these four things are the cornerstones of human, of human interaction. Okay. But he develops this and he gets, he gets allowed, okay, uh, you know, by a prestigious college to to teach it, you know, and to experiment with it and, and all of this, you know, in between his his course, his general courses in psychology. Okay. So he becomes, uh, you know, teacher in psychology. During that time, he meets a student. Okay. He is married. He is married to his wife, Elizabeth Moulton Marston. Um, granted, while even even though he's married before he, he goes into the war, when he's in the war, he does end up having a relationship with another woman. OK, now the Marstons, Elizabeth and William, are both ardent feminists. They're all part of the whole uh, uh, like Ethel Byrne, Margaret Sanger kind of style, you know, feminists of their day. They're really into free love, into unconventional living and all this other stuff, a lot of which I can relate to. Now, I know when people hear the name Margaret Sanger, they start flipping out. We can talk about that another time. okay? because I think that. Well, if you're a libertarian, I think that you hear certain names and you immediately attribute certain things when, and you, and I, what I think you do is a lot of times you end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Okay. And I, I like to remedy that 
on sovereign tech when it comes to when we talk about ethics and when we talk about history and some of these figures who are pivotal, perhaps, in the development of science, which I would argue William Moulton Marston was, whether people realize it or not, or at the very least, he was an espouser of a lot of science, uh, some stuff that is still kind of interesting, like psychons, uh, you know, within within the con- within the conversation of what is consciousness and, you know, and all of that. So anyway. Um, he when he is in. So, again, these are people that practice free love. Uh, in fact, in the movie, which I've talked about many times, Professor Marson and the Wonder Woman, there's a point where his wife, Elizabeth, says to him, you know, I'm your wife, not your jailer saying, you know, go ahead and fuck who you want, you know. And so he while he's in the uh, in the military, he does end up meeting a woman. I think her name is Elizabeth Huntley, not to be confused with Elizabeth uh, uh, Marston. But anyway, Miss we'll, we'll call her Miss Huntley. Uh, he ends up starting a relationship with her and, you know, the the relationship kind of fizzles when he gets back to normal life and he starts teaching psychology and everything, uh, you know, at university. But, you know, his idea that, OK, you know, he stoops a lot and whatever, and they, they you know, there's other not not necessarily other partners, but other people involved, you know, that doesn't go away. And eventually he meets a student. Now, you can get into you can certainly argue about, wait a minute, what's the ethics of stooping a student, right? Of a professor stooping a student that's considered ixnay on the ombre today, right? Okay, that's another conversation that we can get into. But bottom line being is he meets a woman named Olive Byrne, who is not uninterestingly the daughter of Ethel Byrne, and Ethel Byrne is the sister to Margaret Sanger, okay? And again, like I said, you know, Elizabeth Marston and William Moulton Marston have all been active in the feminist movement of that day, are very familiar with Ethel Byrne and Margaret Sanger, but just didn't connect that Olive Byrne was in any way related to them. So she ends up working with them on their project of the lie detector test. OK, Olive Byrne does. And eventually William Moulton Marston or whatever the timeline is for this, there's some speculation here. Uh, he ends up falling in love with Olive Byrne and. Sooner or later, Elizabeth Marston also ends up falling in love with Olive Byrne. And they become a full on triad. okay, a triad relationship to where, you know, like he has kids with Olive and he has kids with Elizabeth, you know, with both his wife and his lover. And eventually in their home, and this is after they get fired from university from, you know, from their their jobs in teaching, uh, eventually they have a fourth Miss Huntley comes back. And so you have a household with, I don't know, five kids or so, you know, from different mothers. And you have, you know, one guy and then you have the three adult women uh, that are involved. None of the kids are, are Miss Huntley's, though. OK, but it's it's a completely this isn't Mormon polygamy. OK, they are all in love with each other. All right. Like every everybody's loving everybody. You know, this is totally, you know, totally equitable. As to where oftentimes in Mormon polygamy, you know, where there's genuine, there can be genuine problems, you know, not all the wives, the wives don't all sleep with each other. They just sleep with the guy. This was a case where the women were all sleeping with each other as much as they were sleeping with William Marston. Okay. So, but he's most famous for the triad. I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot to be known about how, you know, what was the sexual proclivity with Miss Huntley, but she was there regardless. So. This is a guy who, and that, you know, then he's going on and, and his whole purpose with developing disc theory and emotions of normal people, according to him anyway, uh, is that he wants to, and this is his claim, is that 
politics and economics are not going to stop wars from happening. They, you know, the only way we're going to solve war and solve violence and, you know, solve all this crap going on is by solving the problems of men's hearts. And so this is where disc theory comes in. Okay. Now, all of this, you know, and then and, and then he starts, you know, when he creates Wonder Woman, which eventually he does that because, look, he's got to make money somehow. And so he figures out he's like, oh, OK, you know, all right. Comic books are popular, blah, blah, blah. I'll get into, uh, you know, creating a comic book character. But he creates this comic book character with the purpose of espousing his his ideology. OK, with espousing disc theory, with espousing all kinds of other stuff and honestly to espouse sex and bondage and a lot of other things. OK, not just disc theory in the raw. And obviously, Wonder Woman becomes a sensation. I mean, in you know, the rest is history, right? Like like everybody knows just how well Wonder Woman did, even though there's some interesting how things changed after William Marston died in 1947 and so on. There's some interesting things around that. But bottom line being in the abstract. He created fiction to espouse his ideas, okay, and to share them with the world and, you know, maybe make his little little dent on the earth, as it were. So this is a guy who I can relate to a lot, and that's why I get so excited about him. And not only that, it's not only that I can relate to him, and I'll explain why in a second, okay, but that he was doing all, or, well, no, let me explain that first. Okay, do these things in order. So this is a guy that, again, I can really, really relate to because he's into free love, just like me. You know, he's doing polyamory before that's even a long before that's even a word, you know, triad, all that stuff. Right. So he's doing that. He served in the military, comes out of a war, realizing just how fucking horrendous war is and that it should never happen again. And he makes moves to keep it from ever happening again. Okay, and he has an interest in educating people because originally he was going to be a lawyer. You know, the, the, the psychology stuff didn't come till much later. Uh, and then he ends up, you know, and I mean, and, and he's very, you know, he's an activist. He's very active in the, shall we say, the unconventional ideologies of its day. And understand that feminism back then is different from feminism today. Most people get very confused when they hear about feminism because they think it's a monolithic thing when it's not. Because a lot of people, libertarians, ANCAPs, whatever, if they read a lot of the classic works of feminism, I don't think you'd have a, I mean, there's some things maybe you'd disagree with, but there's probably a lot more that you'd agree with than disagree with within those, uh, within those texts. Because again, it was a very different situation. And it's a lot of that writing and stance was based upon not just like, like it was writing about how women were being oppressed, but it was the arguments it was it was making was based up, were based upon individualism saying that, no, we're just humans too, you know, as, as to where I think a lot of people think today that modern feminism, not that I even necessarily have so much of a problem with that, uh, is maybe going too far in their minds or is, you know, is, is a political thing and blah, blah, blah. So, but I'm just saying, understand that feminism back then was different than it is today. There have been multiple waves of feminism and each one of those is very different. That's why they've been classified into waves because they have been so different from each other. Okay. But he's involved in that. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of Emma Goldman. I've said that many times. I've talked often about, you know, why I've been a, a proponent, uh, an ally to feminism for so long, because it was the only ideology historically that started questioning everything as far as social structures go. I mean, egoism does that, too, but you don't really have so many works on that, you know, to, to really reference. Um, but anyway, so this is a guy, you know, I mean, he, he's an activist. 
educator, um, you know, and it wants to put an end to war, did his time, saw the horrors of war, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and then he ends up using, you know, then he's very much into free love, a proponent of free love and, and, and other things, you know, other, shall we say, uh, unconventional sexual acts. <laughs> and then he comes up, you know, he, he decides to use fiction in this case, comic books. And in this case, wonder woman to espouse his ideas and to bring his ideas to the broader world. Okay. And to put them in a more palatable form, maybe even an under the radar form of sorts. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> I'm not boasting. I'm just saying, does that sound remotely familiar? I can really relate to this guy and he was doing it a hundred years ago. That's what blows my mind is that me. Now I don't think I'm any kind of great thinker. Not really. Okay. I, I, I get kind words from people. I really don't think I'm that great a thinker. And I think everything is a remix. There are, there's nothing new under the sun. There are no new thoughts under the sun. Not really. Okay. Uh, there's new applications of doing things, you know, or way that you apply knowledge or ideas or something like that. But you know, everything's a remix. Okay. Part of the reason that intellectual property is absolute horseshit, (laughs) but regardless of that, but to hear somebody who was putting things together so well a hundred years ago and who figured so much of this stuff out, uh, that's inspiring to me. And again, I can really relate to this guy and I want to know, I want to know how did you come up with this? Like, you know, when in my head, when I'm thinking about it. William Marston, how did you come to these conclusions? Because I know how I got to mine, but how did you get to yours? And are, is there any, anything to glean from how he got to a lot of these conclusions? I mean, he wasn't an anarchist as far as I know, but regardless, he got a lot of stuff on, in my opinion, a lot of stuff, even some of his like wilder ideas, I think were, were pretty spot on in what he was laying out. So that's where my obsession with, you know, with William Marston comes from. And, you know, toss in the mix, like the fact that he would get really, really into history, uh, you know, and and try to explain things even from that angle and whatever. I mean, like I could totally relate to that. In fact, he wrote, I I don't have this book yet and I want this book. Um, I think I put it on wishlist.zog.ninja. Okay, (laughs) because this is not cheap. Um, But he wrote a book in 1932 called Venus with us, uh, a tale of the Caesar, which is all about Julius Caesar on these various, you know, going around the world and everything, but he puts all the sex and everything else into it. And even some of his ideas, because another thing that William Marston's known for is he actually thinks women are superior to men, um, which not a outrageous, believe it or not within activist circles in that time, not that outrageous of an idea. Okay. And I didn't know that until recently, but anyway, that that's, that's something he puts out there, but that kind of like takes place in this. And I want this book. And if I ever get it, I will, you know, again, it's not cheap. Um, I will get it professionally scanned and I will share it with the world to make sure everybody can get their hands on this uh, because it is such a like I, it, it's got to be amazing. I, I got to read this. <laughs> it's got to be sexy, quite frankly. Um, but, yeah, there's just there's so much that Marston would end up talking about that I just think is. Yeah, I just I want to know how did he how did he come up with this? And I've got to you got to give credit. Agree with him on everything or not. You have to give somebody credit for being willing to lead that lifestyle. At that time, in the 30s and the 40s, I mean, that's that's ballsy. 
that's ballsy and that's an activism in itself. I have nothing but respect for somebody who's willing to lead that kind of unconventional life, especially in those very conventional times. So, yeah, he's become a little bit of a personal obsession of mine because I want to know how he got to the same points that I did uh, and did so 100 years before, you know, I ever did. And again, not that I was thinking I, I came up with anything original, but there's he's got a lot going for him. So anyway, uh, again, not a perfect person when he would get older. Um, I mean, apparently he was a very like devilishly handsome guy. That's that's kind of the the understanding of things uh, as he would get much, much older. He would you know, he'd end up weighing, you know, he'd put on a lot of weight. Um, you know, his health would go down, would, would take a turn for the worst. He'd apparently become very combative, uh, you know, or like yelling a lot around the house. I mean, all kinds of, you know, the guy's not perfect. I, I don't have that kind of obsession where like, I think he could do no wrong or that every idea he has is just brilliant. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. But I think he's him. And again, you know, here's the other part too, is that being the time that it was, it's tough to tell what ideas are his and what ideas are just attributed to him that were actually the ideas of, say, his lover or, you know, his wife, Elizabeth Marston, or their lover, Olive Byrne, or maybe even Miss Huntley. You know, we don't know. OK, and we and we'll probably never know because they kept their lives such a secret. That, you know, that there was ever that kind of relationship. And in fact, I mean, there were there were hints you know, people could look into it a little bit and they could see, well, the Marstons had some kind of extramarital lover and everybody assumed that was Miss Huntley. No one ever thought that it was Olive Byrne. No one knew, or at least no one that, that wrote it down or no one that bothered to question things. I mean, this is a very private life and it's really not until the past few years that, that anyone's really found all this out about these people. And it makes me wonder, you know, when I hear about this, when I hear about this guy who, you know, who came to all these amazing conclusions, again, not all of them are great, but you know, led this unconventional life and all this. How many other people do we not know about that did that? And who knows what the fuck they contributed to society? I mean, I would argue contributing Wonder Woman to society is a pretty fucking awesome thing. And maybe he had more that he wanted to contribute or if it wasn't him, his wife or Oliver, whoever, you know. So, I mean, just it, it gets you thinking. But, yeah, the, the Marstons, I shouldn't just say William Marston, but the, I mean, it's just everything gets attributed to him. But the Marstons in general, including Olive Byrne and whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, it's become a little bit of an obsession of mine uh, because I just I want to know how they got how they got there. How did they come to these conclusions? What you know, what allowed for that to happen? Uh, because it's pretty incredible. So anyway, we'll talk about that more, you know, as as these ideas, you know, anything that I find interesting that he talks about will is and will get integrated into my own ideology, which, of course, totally comes out on display on Sovereign Tech. Uh, my ideologies always have. I mean, that's part of I, and I, I freely admit that on the show that my uh, my ideology, my ethics colors, everything that I talk about. Uh, so you know, if there's something that I find interesting, I'll probably inject it in. But I do recommend you explore uh, these characters of history because I think there may be a lot to learn uh, from what they, if anything, just from the fact that they were willing and able to lead that lifestyle in in a time that was no way amenable to any of that. So, all right, let's move on to another question. Um, you know, I got a I got a follow up question from uh, this past week's episode of Sovereign Tech, which was from a the AMA that we did uh, that Ellen Stephanie and I did where we were asked specifically to be asked to all three of us by a listener 
you know, if you could live on a, or, you know, what, what would be your top three fictional worlds or something? And so I had a couple people actually get in touch with me saying, Hey, could you tell us a couple of the otter ones? Cause I said, I could probably come up with some otter planets that I'd want to live on than necessarily something off of Star Trek or out of Star Wars or something like that. And, you know, when I got the couple questions, like I thought about it for a minute and I was like, no, not really. Actually, <laughs> I, I more or less came to the conclusion that I'm actually way more interested in ships when it comes to science fiction and, and like or fictional realms than, you know, ships and space stations and things like that uh, or cities than I or like like Atlantis than I am on like the actual like planets themselves, you know. And so I don't really have any other ones. I, I mean, I, I kind of want to say Sappho 3, but that's a planet of my own creation. <laughs> if you read the Sovereign Tech newsletter and is technically, I guess, Star Trek. But um, <laughs> I wonder why it was called Sappho. Uh, anyway, that's. <laughs> yeah, I had fun with that. Um, but other than that, no, like when I actually like tried to sit down and think about it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, if you ask me what ship I want to be on, I could think of a million, you know, Sequest or, you know, obviously the Enterprise, depending upon which one, even, you know, whatever, like I could go on and on about that. But as far as actual planets, yeah, that was kind of a tough call. I got to admit, it was a great question. It's an awesome question, but it's like, it's amazing. It, it kind of got me thinking about just how, how big of a part planets play um, in science fiction in general. And do they play much of a part? I mean, another thing, like, I'd love to live, you know, effectively on one of the, what is a culture ship, right? Because they don't necessarily like to inhabit planets, um, you know, from Ian Banks's culture series. But, yeah, yeah, it's what I got. And I don't think you can count Ringworld or anything, you know? Um, so there you go. Anyway, okay, uh, another question. Uh, this is a fun one. So the person pretty much says they're the ones that have been asking this whole time <laughs> all the uh, greatest of all time questions, and they were wondering about the best PlayStation 2 game of all time. Uh, actually, they asked me if I'd do a top eight. I don't know that I could do a top, or I mean, I can do a top eight. There's, there's definitely eight great PlayStation 2 games. Let's be clear here about the PlayStation 2. Next to maybe the Wii or, I, I mean, if we're talking raw sales, there's a debate whether or not the PS2 or the Wii are the best-selling systems of all time. Or do you count the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, all the way to Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance? Is that actually just one system? Just, like, it's a family of systems? And that the Game Boy is actually the best-selling game system of all time? I mean, there's arguments that go around about this. But the PlayStation 2 has an argument for being the best-selling game system of all time and I think has a great argument to be made. I don't, it's not my favorite, but has a great argument to be made for being the greatest game system of all time. I don't think that's unheard of. Uh, but here's the thing, is that, you know, to base the PlayStation 2, to say that it's, the reason it was such a great selling system was because the games are that great, I think is a, is a mistake to make, okay? So we're going to talk gaming here for a little bit, then we'll get into your album of the week. But I think that's a mistake to make. And the reason I say that is that really the reason the PlayStation 2, I think, sold so well is because it was the cheapest DVD player in the world for a long time. And that's it. DVDs were the new hotness. And you could lay down, you know, a couple hundred bucks, whatever, for a PS2. And at the time, that was a cheap DVD player. You know, or if it was a little bit less, that was a cheap DVD player for a long, long time. It was more or less the cheapest DVD player out there. Uh, and, and that did well. And I mean, look, there's a reason that Blu-ray and, you know, the successor to, uh, to DVD, 
that Blu-ray and the PlayStation 3 were released kind of in conjunction. Both Sony technologies, more or less. I mean, Blu-ray is pretty much a Sony technology, and of course the PlayStation 3 obviously is. But Sony knew that the reason the PlayStation 2 sold so well was because it could play DVDs. I mean, they're, they're totally aware of that. And that's why there was that very careful timing uh, of the PlayStation 3 and Blu-ray marketing, really. Okay? So to say that it's like, it, it's even if you give me the argument, even if you sh- showed me solid numbers that the PlayStation 2 is the greatest, uh, uh, you know, or the biggest selling game system of all time, I would argue against that point. And look, I love the PlayStation 2. I mean, I fucking love it. Like, I, I some of my favorite games of all time exist on the PlayStation 2, okay? I'm not saying the PlayStation 2 is shit. I'm not saying it's not deserving of its, uh, of its luster and of its, uh, you know, reputation. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that I think the numbers are very skewed because a lot of people bought that to be a DVD player, not to be a game machine. So it's tough to say, I think, that it's the greatest selling game machine of all time. As to where when you say the Wii is, I think that's a much easier argument for that. Um, so anyway, even though I, don't, I would also argue that the PlayStation 2 has a much better game library than the Wii ever had. Uh, and I love the Wii. I mean, I really love the Wii. But the PlayStation 2, you know, killed it. And, or I, you know, I mean, did, did great as far as like having a game library and it didn't hurt that you could play every PlayStation one game onto the PlayStation two, which at the time was unheard of to have that kind of uh, uh, backwards compatibility. And that set a whole new trend in the gaming industry. PlayStation two, I mean, just a landmark system, you know, one of the most important, if not the most important, I, and you know, you want to talk about importance? Yeah, then I, I, I might accept your argument about PlayStation 2. If not the most important game system of all time, I totally understand. Um, not the most advanced, not, you know, not any of that stuff by a long shot, but important? Fuck yes. So anyway, yeah, I love the PlayStation 2. Uh, as far as paring it down to one game on it that I think is the greatest, oh boy. I mean, I, I could do a top eight with it, but... I'll tell you, the game I played the most on it was uh, Spy Hunter. But Spy Hunter was available on Xbox. It was on GameCube. I mean, that was available kind of across the board. Uh, Spy Hunter Nowhere to Run, I think that might have been a PlayStation 2-only title. Uh, I love that. That has the rock in it, actually. Um, I I love the Spy Hunter games. Uh, I mean, just fucking love them. Um I, I, but you can't call that like, that's my, that's, that's one of my favorite games of all time, but you can't exactly say it's the greatest PlayStation two game of all time. Right. I mean, that, that, that's kind of tough to tough to call. I would probably, and this is also one of my favorite games of all time. I probably hand it over. I'd give it to Gradius five. I think Gradius five is such an underrated and brilliant game. There's a reason that it's been re-released on the PlayStation network. Uh, for modern systems or more modern systems, because people know, wow, you know, treasure or Konami hired treasure and treasure just the, the game development house treasure just knocked it out of the fucking park. I mean, they, they blasted it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Babe Ruth had nothing on that. Gradius five is remarkable. Um, I'm a huge, probably my favorite games game type. Uh, I love RPGs and I love RTSs, but probably my favorite game type overall has always been the, the shmup, right? The shoot 'em up, the side scrolling 2d shoot 'em up. Or it could be over the head too, over over top. It doesn't have to be side scrolling, uh, because sometimes Gradius games, right, would do both. But um, 
like the PlayStation two is a golden system for shmups for, for shoot 'em up games, you know, our type final, uh, um, gun Griffin blaze, Silpede, again, the Gradius games, you can actually get Gradius three through five on, on PlayStation two. Um, I mean, there's just, there's, there's a ton on there that are just, that are brilliant, brilliant games. I think Ikaruga might've gotten released for PlayStation two. That's one of the greatest shmups of all time. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's so many for, for that system. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd probably give it to Gradius five. I think because it was a console exclusive at the time. And, and I think it, it delivered everything you wanted out of that game it has one of the best soundtracks of all time. The graphics for the time were phenomenal. The gameplay was absolutely brilliant. Like I said, treasure really brought it uh, with Gradius five. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've got to give them that. Um, but there's so many there there there's so many games. I mean, yeah, you want to say Shadow of the Colossus, you want to say God of War, you want to say Final Fantasy. I don't know whichever one. Uh, I understand. I, I'm not. I, you know, I get I get where those are great, but I think it's better to answer with something maybe that's a little more uh, rare. You know, and also a lot of great Dreamcast titles ended up getting ported to the PlayStation Two after the Dreamcast failed because the game development houses said, "Well, shit, we've got this great game on a dead system." Let's get it somewhere else. You know, you'd get the new Echo of the Dolphin on PlayStation 2, which is phenomenal. You get Space Channel 5. You get Ready to Rumble Boxing. You know, you get a lot of these really great games that were originally only for the Dreamcast that, you know, just the, the game houses wanted to make more money off of them and fucking right. So the PS2, I mean, you know, the other nice thing about the PS2 is that you had so many, um, and the other systems would get these too, but the, but the PlayStation 2 got a, got a lot of them kind of like the Nintendo DS where you'd get so many games that were, or game discs, I should say that were collections. that were historical collections of classic gaming. Like you'd get SNK volume one. Um, you'd get the midway arcade treasures volumes one through three. Uh, you know, you get the street fighter collection. You'd get all these other ones. I mean, just, just a crazy amount you could have with the PlayStation two alone. You could really get into, I mean, you could have a retro gaming machine that is completely unmatched. And I'm not even talking about, you know, putting like free McBoot on, onto a memory card for the PlayStation 2. That's a whole other conversation where you could play so many game systems on a PlayStation 2. I mean, it just gets nuts, you know, it, in a lot of ways, especially, boy, if you, you know, all right, I'll tell you, if you get free McBoot involved, if you start saying, well, what if I have a PlayStation 2 with free McBoot on it? Then you have the greatest game system of all time. Like, there's just no argument because you're playing Super Nintendo games on there. You know, you're playing Genesis games, original Nintendo games. You're playing the entire PlayStation 1 library. You're playing the entire PlayStation 2 library. I mean, you're just like the possibilities become almost endless. And then there's just more homebrew stuff that gets made for the PS2 by the day. Um, you know, I mean, I have one, you know, and I've had to like replace the laser on it. I mean, I've done the business. You know, we're talking about a system that's so what over 16 years old, uh, man. It is a fine little machine, I have to say. But uh, yeah, I'm going to give as far as like what the greatest PlayStation 2 game of all time. And look, I know what you're going to I know you're going to Bushido Blade, Einhander or wait, no, those are PlayStation 1 or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> it's tough to get, get confused because then like talking PlayStation 1, it's like, well, Colony Wars. Like if you can count PlayStation 1 games as being the greatest for PlayStation 2, you're going to bring up Colony Wars in a heartbeat or at least I would, uh, you know, and then you're then there's your Grand Theft Autos, you know, you got Vice City, blah, blah, blah. And there's so many to choose from, but I'm going to give it a Gradius 5. I've got to give it a Gradius 5. I think that game is just too fucking good and not talked about enough. 
And I know it's not talked out, talked about enough. Why? Because we don't have Gradius six. God damn it. You know, we just don't. Uh, and I don't know. A lot of shmups, I think, kind of died on the PlayStation 2. Like R-Type, there hasn't been a new a new R-Type since the PlayStation 2. You had R-Type Final, of all things. I mean, it's fucking in the name. Uh, and, that, you know, that's probably my second favorite shmup series, uh, you know, after, after Gradius. But, yeah, totally giving it to Gradius 5. So, okay, let's go on to our... Uh, our our album of the week that'll wrap things up for for our questions uh had a couple other ones but someone asked me to do a review of snow crash by neil stevenson um i will get into that uh that'll probably be a completely separate episode and i still have the entire harlan episode that i want to do and those will be coming uh coming shortly so um okay this week's album of the week this is a brand new album that just came out and it's by a singer that I am a major, major fan of. Uh, this is a, you know, if you want to get really technical, this is a melodic hard rock album. Okay. Um, I, it's tough to call this one metal because it's not that heavy, but it's by a guy who's been in metal acts in the past. Uh, and it's Ted Poley. Ted Poley is, has one of the most recognizable, if you know of him, has one of the most recognizable voices in metal and hard rock. Uh, and he's best known for being the lead singer of the band Danger Danger, who would have some degree of popularity in the early 90s with their self-titled album Danger Danger. And then I would argue the album that came out a couple of years after one of the greatest, you know, rock metal, whatever term you want to use. We, we had a conversation about that last week. But one of the best metal albums, in my opinion, ever, which is uh, Danger Danger's Screw It. I mean, and it, it is. It's just a fantastic album. Um, so he has, he's over the years, he's come out with some solo work now understand. And I know this is a joke or this is the statement is usually used as a joke, but it's quite serious in this, in this case, Ted Poley is huge in Japan. I mean, he's just huge, you know? Um, and he's had a solo career there when he left danger danger for a little while and they brought in another guy and then he you know came back to danger danger, but they haven't released anything under the danger danger label in years. Uh, not since like 2011, maybe it was even 09. I, I forget when their last one revolve, I think was the name of the album. I forget when that, when that it was either 09 or 2011 that that came out. But anyway, he's done a few different other things. Um, he also has another band called Tokyo motor fist, which has done one album that came out, I think in 2016, brilliant album. And that's got some, that's got a little more riffage to it than this, but he just came out with another solo album called modern art. And this is, very heavy on the melody okay and not so heavy on the rock but it is a rocker there's electric guitar in there you know and 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 there's some good times um there's personally i think it's track for track it feels a lot like ted poley went in the direction of more of like a harem scarum if you've ever heard the band harem scarum who are also huge in japan and they're huge in their home country of canada they never really made it in the u.s unfortunately I can't understand why, because I think they're one of the greatest metal acts of all time or hard rock, whatever term you want to go with. One of the best hard rock acts ever. Uh, their, their first album, their self-titled album is just a masterpiece and they've been making albums on the regular since pretty much 1995, you know, and they haven't stopped. Uh, they just had another album come out last year. They had United come out in 2017. Um, I mean, they, they have like 10, 12 albums, you know, inside of that time frame. That's, that's incredible. So, uh, but yeah, Ted Pulley, uh, modern art. I mean, you get that classic Ted Pulley voice, 
you know, that that just comes out, you know, and sings like a canary uh, and it, it, phenomenal. Um, a lot of a lot of synth. And I don't mean like cheesy. key. Well, I mean, it is cheesy keyboard, but I don't mean like kind of that that cheap keyboard that sounds weird. Uh, sometimes to people who aren't used to it, like if you listen to Deep Purple and you're like, wow, what the hell is that keyboard doing there? Now, this is more of like a real synth keyboard that fits. This sounds, this has a very, if I were to describe it, it has a very futuristic sound. Like this is a direction that I think a lot of metal slash hard rock has been going in other parts of the world. You think, for example, the band Heat, uh, where they have a lot of synthesizer that comes in and or a lot of synth that comes in. And Ted Poley, like he might take it even a little too far, but it's still a track for track album. I love every song on it. Every song is totally listenable. Uh, the last track on it, Wilderness, I think is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I had a lot of fun listening to this album. Again, it just came out. Uh, but I love Ted Poley, uh, one of my favorite singers, no doubt. And I mean, Danger Danger is just such a badass band. And if you've never listened to those first two albums from Danger Danger, you are missing out on a real treat because that is some sexy fun times, let me tell you. And I emphasis on the sexy and the fun. I mean, real emphasis on that. It's there. Uh, so check out Ted Poley's uh, Modern Art. You know, check it out. Try before you buy because I can I can understand where this sound is a bit of an acquired taste. And you've really got to love Ted Poley to even like want to try it out. But if you like Ted Poley, if you like that sound, or if you're into like heat, or or even if you checked out Tokyo Motor Fist, which I think was an album of the week on Sovereign Tech Prime at one point, um, you're really going to like this because, well, it's the same guy in that case. I mean, he's not from heat, but he's, you know, from Tokyo Motor Fist and from Danger Danger. Uh, but it's got a lot of that sound, and it, it, it's a modern direction that I think a lot of melodic hard rock is going to go. And uh, I'm not opposed to it. I think it's cool. Uh, and I thought it was just a just a beautiful album to listen to. His, I mean, his voice is just incomparable. There's really nothing else quite like it. Um, I'm I'm such a fan. The only guy that comes close to his voice would be like C.J. Snare from Firehouse, uh, which another band that I'm just a huge fan of, and that is still massively huge in Japan. And they still come out with albums, and people have no idea. Like they get radio play in Japan. Do you understand? With like albums that came out, you know, just a few years ago. Uh, I mean, Firehouse is huge. So, yeah, probably the closest voice I can imagine that he sings like, I would say, would be like uh, C.J. Snare. Sort of like how C.J. Snare sings in, um, was it Shake and, T- it's a Shake and Tumble off of off of their first album, off of Firehouse's first album? Oh, what a great band. Anyway, there you go. That's <laughs> There's your, your Wednesday Q&A. You got your album of the week. We got into some questions, some explanations of things that are going on. Recommendation of rockandfastmail.fm if you're looking to get a new email provider. I couldn't recommend them enough. I, I, I've been nothing but pleased with what they've got going on. Uh, and, yeah, we talked a little bit of gaming. How about that? So another well-rounded uh, Wednesday Q&A for Sovereign Tech. So thank you to all of the patrons. I appreciate it. More content to come out throughout this month. Of course, you got the Relationship Rhombus, got the Star Wars update, got more of Emotions of Normal People by William Marston to come out, uh, which I, I really think is a book people, people should explore. Uh, and there might be some surprises in between all of that. Uh, and, well, anyway, I won't spoil them. So, all right, there it is. Woo! I will see all of you on the other side.